Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And Jacob, we are talking about water. We're talking about higher education. We're talking about bill deadlines in today's episode. That's right, Joey. It's a packed one. To start off today's show, Joey's going to be talking to reporter Daniel Rothberg. Joey, did you know that we almost lost a bunch of water records? Yeah, they almost we almost lost them because of flooding. And uh, we're going to hear more from Daniel now. Well, Jacob has hopped off the call here for a second to go prepare for his segment, which will be coming up in a second about Enchi. But right now I'm here and I'm joined by our environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg. Daniel, how's it going? It's going well. Good, good. And so you recently wrote a newsletter in the environment. It comes out twice a month about digitizing water records here in the state. And to start off, I just want to understand what water records even are. So the way that water is appropriated and used in Nevada is based on a permit system. And in order to use water, you have to have a permit to use that water with the state. These permits go back almost 100 years and they're tied to historical claims of water. Most of these records have not been digitized. And it's a huge problem because in order to determine who has the right to use water when there's a conflict or when that comes into question, regulators, policymakers, lawyers, activists, they need to go to the record. And right now, the record is on these old sheets of print paper, on these old maps, and it's really hard to ensure that you have an accurate and complete record when it's not digitized. So the state is embarking on this project, as other Western states like California are, to digitize and modernize its water records and accounting. Yeah. And so how are they going about digitizing like all of these maps and pieces of paper and, and you know, probably books and everything like that? Yeah. So the, the state received some federal funding through um, the American Rescue Plan, ARPA, to digitize these records. They're, they're hiring those new employees will be tasked with going through all of the documents, more or less, at the Division of Water Resources. We're talking about water rights. We're talking about maps, old maps field notes, surveys, testimonies, hearings, well logs, and they'll be over time digitizing most of those records and determining best way of doing that. In some cases, these records are old. They're, they're fragile documents so that you can't just feed them in all at once to a scanner. You have to really manually do that. And then the second part of this will be figuring out a way to showcase the records to the public. So a, a public-facing system that will, will allow the public to access the records. And so these are all kind of just kept in a basement in Carson City right now. Is that right? <laughs> well, they're actually not kept in the basement. Most of the records are actually kept in the offices of the Division of Water Resources in Carson City. If you have a water right, you probably want to look at your water right file, which shows every action associated with that water right. But right now, the only way to do that is to actually physically go to Carson City. That's a huge burden in terms of access. There's also a lot of records that are kept offsite in courthouses across the state, in district courts. And we almost lost some of those records to flooding recently, right? Uh, kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah, it was a big wake-up call, I think. And actually, kind of this anecdote was sort of the impetus for my doing this story. I was at a conference earlier this year and I heard the state engineer, who's the top water regulator, talking about moisture at the Humboldt County Courthouse in Winnemucca. 
had sort of seeped into the underground vault basement area where they store these records and had threatened to destroy some of these original, what they call decree maps for the Humboldt River. And that would have been a, a huge loss of just knowledge about how we go about managing water. Yeah. And, you know, there's other reasons to want to preserve these water records, including, you know, understanding climate change and how water has changed around the state. It's, you know, it's a scientific endeavor as much as it is an endeavor to understand who has the rights to use water. Yeah, it's it's really important. It's important legally. It's important scientifically in our knowledge of water science in the state. And it's important moving forward as we're dealing with more and more conflict around an increasingly scarce resource. All right, Daniel. Well, thanks for explaining all of this. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll even be more reporting as these records get digitized. Maybe you'll dig into them and learn some interesting facts. You're welcome. I, I hope this wasn't too dry. <laughs> All right. Hello, Jacob. Welcome back. How was researching for this next topic? Joey, you wouldn't believe it. I'm so prepared right now. <laughs> good, good, good. So this is pretty wild. We're talking about NSHE, the Nevada System of Higher Education, and different employees' eligibility for raises and bonuses from the government, right? Right. And I think this gets to sometimes how complicated it can be when we talk about like who counts as a state worker and specifically do higher education employees count as state workers? Just to put it real simply to start, Governor Joe Lombardo wants to address this crisis in state government where there's massive vacancy rates, you know, sometimes upwards of 20, 30 percent vacancy rates in some agencies. And as part of the solution, what he proposed is a $2,000 annual bonus paid out in $500 quarterly chunks. Now, everyone's on board with this, including Democrats and Republicans, but they want to move quickly to start getting them out. So in order to meet some deadlines that are going to happen before the end of this fiscal year this summer, they've already passed one bill, AB 268, that covers the first $1,000 of this thing. However, <laughs> there was a wrinkle when that bill finally hit committee. They looked at it and said, well, there's not possibly enough money in here if we include higher ed employees. And so we're going to just take them out. Suddenly they were taken out. Now the bill has passed the assembly and it's going to head to the Senate. And all of these higher education employees and she, these institutions are saying, wait, no, time out. What happened here? So is this everyone that works in higher education? No. And this is one of the problems that makes it complicated. So NSHE does have a lot of employees. If you were to count literally every human being in NSHE's employee, it's about 22,000 people. And this was one of the numbers that actually got brought up in the committee process. We're like, oh, how many thousands of employees does NSHE actually have? Now, that includes a lot of people who wouldn't be covered by this kind of thing. So there are different classes of employees, classified employees actually included in the bill. So what matters now is professional employees. And this, these are the instructors. These are the administrators. And there's about 7,700 of them. And all of them were cut out of this bill. But it goes even deeper than that. So are all 7,700 of those people then paid by the state of Nevada? So this is what makes it even more complicated, Joy, because the answer is no. <laughs> so out of that 7,700 people, about 4,900 are state-funded positions that are, are normally subject to what we would traditionally think of the way that the state handles state employees. And I think when we talk about who gets cut out of this bill, it's really that 4,900 that's really for sure cut out. You know, when the, the committee got the bill, what they basically said in the meeting is that the bill does not have enough money in it to pay all of these NSHE employees. So the quickest way to get through this is to take these NSHE employees out. 
this bill was severely underfunded. And so it is unclear now if that is, if it's up to the governor's office to request more money, if they're going to try and request more money on the Senate side, if they're going to try and say, you know, hash out, maybe the high paid employees don't count. It may be that no one gets added back. We really have no idea what could happen between now and when this thing gets the governor's signature on it. Has there been any talk about just maybe adding them in as in a separate bill? You know, they don't get this first round of five hundred two five hundred dollar checks, but they'll create a separate bill that then presents the higher education employees with five hundred dollar checks in the future. Well, we haven't heard that specific proposition, but what has come up is that, look, this isn't going to be the first and only bill about these bonuses. There's going to be future bills that handle future bonuses, and there's an opportunity to think more clearly about the math. Part of the problem, like I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, is, you know, they're on a time crunch. If we want to get this done this fiscal year, right, get these first $1,000 out ASAP, well, then this needs to happen right now. And so the time incentive is working against Enshi. Yeah. Now, does that mean they get cut out of future bonus bills? Does that mean they get cut out of other stuff? Like, uh, for instance, the governor proposed an 8% cost of living increase for state employees this year, a 4% increase next year. You know, from what I've heard from Enshi folks is that they're pretty confident they're not going to get cut out of that. What it sounds like is there was a very specific appropriations issue on this little slice. But what it means in real terms is, you know, at least 4,900 people are not getting $1,000 that they might have expected to get in, you know, earlier this year. And my final question is just how is this going to affect students and, you know, everyone else? How, how, does, this, how does this impact people? Yeah, and I think if we're looking at how this impacts the rest of the system, and we're talking specifically about students, we have to look maybe at the macro level. Because right now, something that's happening not just in Nevada, but nationwide, is this brain drain from higher ed to the private sector, because higher ed salaries simply can't compete with the private sector. It's been very difficult to replace some faculty, especially depending on the position. And that's what ends up impacting students. So we're seeing, for instance, it's really difficult for colleges to hire advising staff. So a lot of colleges are struggling to meet the right kind of ratio for advisors to students. You know, that hurts a student, right? Like trying to figure out what credits you should take in college is not a simple task. And not having that advising help can have real impacts. It could extend, right, the time it takes to complete a degree beyond what someone might. And that is dollars and cents, right? You have to pay for that degree. So the longer you spend in college, the more expensive stuff gets. And I think that's really what colleges are worried about is that they're not able to be as nimble as they'd like to be under these circumstances. All right. Well, Jacob has left the call again just for a brief moment to go prepare for. You'll find out at the end of the episode. It's been a kind of a crazy news day here. <laughs> but Michelle Rendell's, our editor, has joined us to talk about the legislature. And this time we're talking about legislative accessibility. Isn't that right, Michelle? Yes. My husband slash co-managing editor, Riley, we, we co-wrote an op-ed piece last week during Sunshine Week to talk about the changes that we've seen over the years that we've covered the legislature on how accessible any individual legislature is actually to answer questions from the press. Yeah. And what's what's Sunshine Week for those who don't know? Sunshine Week is an annual celebration nationally of open government and transparency. So celebrating things like public records laws and open meeting laws that help the public understand what's going on in their government and obtain information when they want it. This session, it's been a a little bit trickier than it has in the past to uh, to have access to politicians as a reporter. Yeah. What our folks on the ground are telling us consistently is that when they go try to ask a question from certain legislators, they're often getting the response of, you need to go talk to the spokesperson. You need to go set up a formal interview, these types of things. 
And it's a change from what we used to see in years past when you would you wouldn't really get that kind of a response. And I, I recall a lot more people were answering the question in the hallway interview that you were asking. You know, and, and we wrote a lot about how that is an important thing, that opportunity right after a vote is taken to just ask a question, take a minute or two of someone's time and ask them what's going on with that. A bill drops, gets introduced, and it sounds crazy on its face. The opportunity to just snag someone right away, ask very quickly, what's going on with this? Get a brief explanation before you tweet about it, before you have a, a deadline that day to write about it. I mean, we don't have three, four days, or we don't have weeks until an opening arrives on someone's schedule to get a sit-down interview with someone over what this bill is out. The moment is is there, and, and you can't let that moment pass. So we really wanted to stress to the legislators that are doing this that we really need that immediate and direct access. They're elected by the public, not by the caucus itself. And they don't need to ask permission to talk about the things that they're sponsoring, the votes that they're taking, all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely become, you know, you know, you'll send an email to a legislator and they'll be like, oh, go through the Democratic Assembly comms person. Right. So it's, you know, there's kind of these this, there's barriers and these layers now that I think, you know, haven't necessarily always been there in the past. They've always been there. But uh, this, the comms person's job in the past has generally been to kind of facilitate those conversations and not to gatekeep them. And we've also observed other trends at the legislature. You know, I remember my first couple of sessions, you could go onto the floor of the assembly, approach someone sort of at their desk and strike up a conversation again. Like, why did you take this vote? Why did you introduce this bill? Is this going to survive or is this going to get amended? All these questions. And now they don't let you go on the floor of either the Senate or the assembly. They don't let you go even in the Senate seating area that used to be for press. And apparently it's now only given to the technical people. And the press are told to go upstairs, which is really completely out of reach of the lawmakers. It doesn't have to be that way. For years, lawmakers did recognize and answer these questions that we were asking in the, in the moment. And they do it in Washington, D.C. You know, it's totally customary for reporters to follow people around in Washington, D.C. to get whatever random question answered. You know, and these are adults. They can, in our opinion, you know, speak for themselves. We don't need to protect them from themselves. All right, Michelle. Well, thanks for hopping on the pod to talk a little bit about that. And now we're going to hop over to talk with Sean and Jacob about all of the craziness that's been going on on this supposedly deadline day. Well, Jacob, you're back in the podcast, and we're also joined by our wonderful coworker Sean Galanka. Jacob, it's been a wild news day. That it has, but in in a weird way, Joey. Yes. Originally, we were going to talk about the bill deadline that was supposed to happen today, but that did not happen. There was no bill deadline. Well, Joey, in order to help us explain, we have Sean here because... There is a suspension of legislative rules. And I guess the question to ask is, why did they suspend legislative rules for the bill deadline today? Well, basically, Jacob, there are hundreds of bills that needed to be drafted by legislative legal staffers, and they just didn't have enough time. They were still working on drafting those bills. Today marked the deadline, and they still had dozens upon dozens to be drafted and introduced. And so 
legislative leadership said, hey, let's suspend the rules. Let's give them some more time and we'll get those bills introduced by next Monday, the 27th. And this first bill deadline, it's just basically it's the last day that they can introduce new bills before like continuing on with the session. Is that how it works? So it's the last day they can introduce most bills. So there's a couple of different deadlines that are important here. This particular deadline is the legislator's bill introduction. So each individual legislator gets a certain amount of bill draft requests. Those requests are what get turned into bills. And that's what we're talking about here, those individual bills. There's another deadline with special bills that are exempt from this process that was supposed to be next Monday, could still be next Monday. Who can say at this point? And then there's other bills, a lot of budget bills usually that are exempt from a lot of these deadlines, period. And that's really what ends up crunching at the very end of the session that all gets talked about at the end. And so this really wasn't a failing on the legislators side. It was kind of just a systemic, you know, there's just not enough staff to, to really accommodate the number of bills that are desired to be introduced by the legislators. Right. That, that, I mean, that's pretty much the, the issue. This comes down to legislative staff drafting bills and the amount of time that they have. And last, last Friday, Brenda Erdos, the director of the Legislative Council Bureau during a budget presentation, basically told lawmakers, some of our staff attorneys are leaving for better paying jobs. And so, you know, really, there's just not enough staff to be drafting all these bills. And especially this session, I think we're seeing some, some really long bills. You know, when, when you have a bill that's 100 pages, you know, 50 pages, whatever it is, some of those really long bills just take up a lot more time for staff to actually draft and, and get to lawmakers. Yeah. Yeah. And these are these are these staff are really hardworking people. I mean, they seem to be working around the clock to kind of keep up with them. Right. Absolutely. And I think just to contextualize where we are right now. So today there were something about 60 ish bills introduced between both the Senate and the Assembly. And now for context in 2021, and this is at a time when like we just got COVID vaccines, there's a ton of limitations on how many staff can be in the building because of COVID. Um, they introduced 55 on the bill deadline and they actually moved the bill deadline that session too. But for even further comparison, in 2019, they introduced 144 bills on the deadline. And in 2017, they introduced over 200 bills on the deadline. And so th that's the impact we're seeing of the fact that the Legislative Council Bureau, the LCB, doesn't have the staff it needs to handle the volume of bills and with the complexity that these bills have. It is funny because basically like they have these set dates, but if they feel like they don't can't meet them, then they can just move them. So, it, you know, kind of like whose line is it anyway? The, the rules are made up and the points don't matter. Right. <laughs> right. And even even today, when they suspended the rules, a majority floor leader, Sandra Hattie, said our intention is to get all of those legislator bills introduced by Monday, March 27th. But they didn't set a new deadline. They suspended the rule that says those bills have to be introduced by the 20th. They didn't officially, you know, say, okay, this is the new deadline. All right, yeah, so the, the rules have been suspended. We'll, we'll see if the bills are actually all introduced by next Monday. Kind of an interesting situation, an interesting turn of events at the Nevada legislature. It's never a dull day. But I wanted to ask too, is there anything that kind of stood out to you today that kind of just was an interesting uh, bill to be presented? One of the things that sticks out to me, Joey, is really similar bills being introduced. We're seeing bills with identical language or, or really similar intention being introduced in both the Assembly and Senate. So it's really going to be a question of, you know, which bill comes out on top. For example, just today, we saw two bills introduced that would overhaul the state's summary eviction process. We've seen multiple bills introduced recently proposing to create these election crimes units within the state government. And so, you know, what's it going to look like when we come down to a later point in the session and we have two really similar bills? 
How are they going to resolve those differences? What's that negotiation process going to look like? Is something I think we'll be watching closely. Yeah. And other than that, on the assembly side, Senator Howard, for instance, introducing a couple gun bills today, a bill that would make it illegal to possess certain semi-automatic weapons if you're under 21, uh, you know, bills that would help close the ghost gun loophole, stuff like that. Versus like Senator Dina Neal, also a Democrat, introduced this bill, this sort of sweeping education bill that would, at the start of it, it's, you know, has these requirements that would make it harder for school boards to clamp down on public comment. But then it would also like make it illegal for county and city governments to operate charter schools. And there's like a bunch of county run charter schools already. So there's a lot of these kinds of omnibus bills that handle like a bunch of different vaguely related things. And, and I think it's really unclear how many of those bills are not going to get amended into something completely different by the end of the session. Well, I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to dig into those bills and talk about them more on the podcast as we get further along in the session. We just hit the one third of the way through the 82nd legislative session here in 2023. So Jacob and Sean, thank you so much for being on the pod today. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Daniel Rothberg, Sean Galanka, and Michelle Rendells for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells and Jacob Solis. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. A lovely sandwich. Oh, yeah. Good. What kind of sandwich? An Italian sandwich with provolone and pickled jalapenos. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did actually finish a jar of pickles today. I don't think I've ever finished a jar of pickles in my life. Nice. Good. Um, Felt good.